This is Company Cars, the podcast that tries to make sense of the car business. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Company Cars. This is episode two of a multi-episode arc about the history of Japanese luxury cars in the U.S. So if you haven't listened to the previous episode about the background and setting of the 1980s and the origin story of Acura, Honda's luxury brand, you'll get more out of this episode if you go back to episode 15 and listen to it first. Because on this episode, we'll talk about Lexus, which was Toyota's luxury car project and how Toyota's strategy differed from Honda's strategy and how that difference has resulted in Toyota's success in the luxury car market in the U.S. today. So how did Lexus start? So recall from the last episode that Honda, Toyota, and Nissan all chose to pursue the development of higher-end cars to export from Japan because of these ongoing voluntary export quotas from Japan to the U.S. that were a result of an increasingly tense trade relationship between Japan and the U.S. during the 1980s that specifically centered around Japanese automobiles becoming very popular in the U.S. So while Honda chose to partner with British-based Rover Group for help and advice on how to build a luxury car, Toyota took a different approach, and some of this was because of Toyota's different experiences and fact patterns leading up to to the development of Lexus. But just to quickly recap our past episode, we talked about how Acura partnered with Rover Group to develop its largest car ever, the Legend, which was aimed at the high-volume segment of mid-sized luxury sedans, and Honda targeted the Legend at the BMW 5 Series and Mercedes-Benz 300e, which we now know as the E-Class. However, Toyota chose to do things a little bit differently. So Toyota had already had some experience building high-end cars because they built the Toyota Century for the Japanese market, and they built the Toyota Crown for the Japanese market. And these two were fairly large flagship luxury sedans. So in the early 1980s, Toyota chairman E.G. Toyota issued a challenge to the company's engineers, and that was to build the world's best car, full stop. So this would be better than anything they had done for the Japanese domestic market, and this would be better than anything that their competitors were doing. And this car was specifically going to be designed for the United States market. And so the company had already developed a strong reputation for high-quality cars in the United States, although... Their cars in the U.S. were typically much more affordable cars like Corollas, and the chairman of Toyota wanted to take this expertise and apply it to luxury cars. And because this car was going to be specifically designed for the U.S. market, Toyota was really worried about getting the car right. Because unlike Honda, Toyota already had some experience building large cars, but these were only for the Japanese domestic market. And so while Toyota felt they had a really good understanding of what Japanese luxury consumers wanted. They didn't really have a good idea of what American luxury car consumers wanted. So the idea was that American luxury car buyers' taste could be very different from their Japanese counterparts, and since this car was going to be primarily for American shoppers, they needed to really understand the U.S. market and what consumers were looking for. And so consumers in the U.S., unlike their peers in Japan, they were busy buying luxury cars from Mercedes, BMW, Jaguar, Lincoln, and Cadillac during the 1980s. So Toyota set out this goal to build a car that would rival the BMW 7 Series and Mercedes S-Class. So this was a slightly different goal than Acura, where if you recall, Acura built their car to be kind of more mainstream and targeted at the biggest part of the luxury car market at the time, but Toyota set its sights kind of one category higher by aiming for 
a flagship-level luxury sedan. So Toyota sent its engineers to Southern California to do a lot of market research about what luxury car buyers in the U.S. were looking for, what kind of behaviors did they exhibit, how did they use their luxury cars, and basically they wanted to get a feel for who these people were. So they spent a lot of time observing the lifestyles, driving habits, preferences of these high-end California shoppers. So they did most of their research in Newport Beach, I think, and they developed volumes and volumes of research to make sure they would get the car just right. And so unlike Acura, uh, Toyota chose to engineer this car in-house, and because it was going to be an all-new car with an all-new platform and an all-new engine, they were essentially starting with a clean sheet of paper, and the legend goes that Toyota gave its engineering team kind of carte blanche to spend whatever they needed to spend, do whatever they needed to do to make this car, which was going to be the best car in the world. And this was very different from Honda. If you'll remember, Honda's approach was to partner with somebody so they could get to market a little bit earlier. But Toyota took all of this market research they did in Southern California and fed that to their engineering team in Japan so they could build a car and engineer a car that consumers wanted. So similar to Acura, their research led them to conclude that to be taken seriously by luxury car shoppers, they would need to sell their cars through separate stores and personnel than Toyota dealerships. So this opened the door to inviting many more consultants to help them figure out how to set up this new sales and support network specific for their luxury car business. And I think the general theme here about Toyota's approach and how it differs from Honda is Toyota had basically no budget for this. They, uh, they were willing to spend whatever it took and whatever they needed to to make sure they had a successful launch. And this was also during an era where Mercedes-Benz was operating their engineering team with a similar philosophy. And while certainly that that has changed a lot since then for Toyota and for Mercedes-Benz, this carte blanche, like, we'll spend whatever it takes decision was very different from Honda. And so Toyota had much more resources to put against this project than their Japanese peers. And so while they were engineering and designing this all-new car and an all-new engine, They also were gathering lots and lots of market research while they were doing this, in addition to the time they spent in California observing luxury car buyers. So one thing that set Toyota's approach apart from Honda was they just did so much more market research and hired so many more brand consultants where they almost overanalyzed the problem to kind of make sure that there was no way that they could fail because they really didn't want to fail with this project. And so they... Uh, they were extremely worried about their ability to sell this high-end car in an unknown market that they had a strong reputation for building things that were much cheaper. So Toyota was really, really conservative here and really wanted to make sure that they knew everything they could about these consumers, how they bought cars, how they thought about cars, how they used their cars before they entered the market. So the upside of this is Toyota arrived on the luxury car scene with much more knowledge and background about luxury car shoppers in America, but they launched much later than Acura. So if you'll remember from our previous episode, Acura came on the market in 1986, and Toyota didn't launch Lexus until 1989 for the 1990 model year. So they hired an army of consultants, and one big issue at Toyota was what to call this new luxury car they were building, because they knew that they couldn't call it a Toyota and be able to sell it for the same price that Mercedes-Benz and BMW were commanding and that consumers expected 
to have this like dedicated luxury car brand, so to speak. So the story here is they hired a bunch of consultants and brand experts, and they developed a series of names, and the leading name was Alexis, the name of a person. So Toyota worried that this name was too close to that of a popular TV character at the time, and the brand consultants and and other experts went back to the name and they modified it a little bit, and that's how we wound up with Lexus, the exact spelling that we get today. And so these consultants also helped Toyota develop a tagline. So if you recall from our Acura episode, Acura's tagline when they launched was Precision Crafted Performance, and that kind of summed up what they were trying to do with the Legend and Integra. So Toyota wanted some help with how should they market their brand and how how should they sum up what they're trying to do here with this car? And so they flew the consultants to Japan, showed them how the car was being engineered, showed them how the car was being designed. And the story goes that these consultants noticed that the engineers were so focused on the specific tiny details of the car and making sure everything was perfect. And they also learned about Toyota's goal to make this car the best car, period. And the consultants kind of saw all this and they came up with the tagline, the Relentless Pursuit of Perfection, which was a tagline that Lexus used for most of its first 20 years in, in existence. It's actually only in the past 10 years or so that Lexus has switched to its new tagline, which I think is experience amazing. And so one recurring theme here is that Toyota went out and hired the best marketing and branding consultants. And so I think one thing to keep in mind, and we kind of talked about this in the first episode of this podcast about winter car sales, and that was, Lexus has always had a really, really good marketing team behind it, whether it was external or internal to the brand. I think over the past 30 years, they've spent a lot of effort and invested a lot of time and money into building this very consistent brand profile and brand identity, which was something that Acura and Infinity maybe failed to do and something that's very difficult to do when you're trying to start a completely new brand in a market and you don't have really any context around which con consumers can evaluate your product because everything is brand new with this brand. And so on that note, Toyota also famously produced this ad for the first Lexus that demonstrated how quiet and refined and well-engineered it was. And what happened is they took a Lexus LS400, which was the first car, they put it on a, on a dyno, which is kind of a way, it, it's like a bunch of rollers, and that way you can drive the car and, and test its top speed and acceleration, and the car doesn't actually move, but the engine is running. So they put a, a pyramid of champagne glasses filled with champagne on the hood of this LS400, ran the engine at full speed, and showed that the champagne glasses would not fall off the hood, no champagne would be spilled, and the idea here was to show consumers how quiet and refined this all-new V8 engine was in this Lexus. And that ad, I think, is, still goes down as one of the most blockbuster ads in the car business in the sense that it was just so out of this world that nobody would have thought to do it, and nobody would have thought it would have worked except for Toyota with this original Lexus. And Throughout the late 1980s, I mean, it's sometimes very hard to keep a secret in the car business because everybody talks and people can see your cars out for testing and they can hear you doing your market research. So there were already a lot of whispers building in the car business that Toyota was going to show up with a blockbuster luxury car. And Acura had already come out and was very successful. And everybody wanted to see where Toyota would go for its luxury car project because rumor was they were working on something. And so they spent 
over a billion dollars on the development of the original Lexus. And that is a lot of money for one car, for one market, with one engine, with kind of no plans to share the design with other products or to use the same engine elsewhere. I think if you tried to do that today and tried to spend the equivalent of a billion dollars today, your accountants and financial planning people would laugh you out of the room because there was just no reasonably good way to spend that much money on the development of a car unless you were doing something as big as launching an entire new brand like Toyota was doing with Lexus. So they spent way more money than their peers Honda and Nissan on this. And it showed. This car was a blockbuster. So Toyota unveiled the original Lexus LS400 at the 1989 Detroit Auto Show, and it blew everybody up. It shocked the world. So executives at GM, Ford, Mercedes, BMW, boards from Stuttgart to Detroit, they everybody was floored by this car and, and how good it was and how quiet and refined it was and and how reliable they expected it to be. And the other thing that Toyota did to kind of knock everybody's socks off was they had always designed and engineered this car as a competitor to an S-Class or a 7 Series. So the top of the line, Mercedes and BMW. And in the early 1990s or in 1990, uh, there had been a lot of inflation in the 80s. And so an S-Class or a 7 Series was priced around sixty-five to seventy thousand dollars in back then, in nineteen ninety dollars, and leasing wasn't very popular back then. And so most luxury car owners kept their S Class or Seven Series for seven to ten years, and then bought a new one. And a lot of these consumers had last bought a Mercedes Benz before kind of this period of heavy inflation in the U.S. during the eighties. And so when they came to the market in nineteen ninety or ninety-one to buy a new car, they were shocked at the price of what a new S Class would cost. So these consumers were already kind of ripe for the picking, and Toyota had this car that was positioned like an S-Class or a 7 Series in performance, but where the S-Class started at about $65,000, Toyota was willing to sell you a Lexus LS400 for forty grand, And this meant the car was priced more like an average equipped 5 Series or E-Class, which meant the car was such a screaming bargain for what you got that... The competitors actually didn't believe you could build the Lexus LS400 for under 40 grand at the time. And um, as a frame of reference, the Acura Legend was a $35,000 car. So for $5,000 more, you could get this larger, more luxurious, more comfortable car than a similar car from Acura. And so this was a total mind blower in the car business during the early 1990s. And the timing was perfect here because all of these Mercedes-Benz and BMW customers coming back to the market and facing sticker shock were kind of ready to look for a new alternative because maybe they had paid $45,000, $50,000 for their Mercedes-Benz 7 or 10 years ago, but now that same car is a $65,000, $70,000 car. And so they were willing to say, yeah, I'll try this new little Japanese thing. I guess it wasn't that little, but they were willing to give this car a try just because the price increases at Mercedes and BMW had stretched so far. And so the timing was also perfect for the Lexus LS400 in the sense that these customers were, were ready to make a switch. And now it's time for a short break. We'll hear from our sponsors, and we'll share some information about how to submit a listener question. The Company Cars Podcast is sponsored by 
Rejected Conjectures Incorporated, a division of integrated derivatives. If you have a question that you want answered on the show, write us an email at companycarspodcast at gmail.com. The next arrow in Lexus's quiver was that Toyota decided they would invest in excellent customer service. And this is a trait the brand is still known for today. And they decided to demonstrate this excellent customer service by, they, by one, requiring Lexus dealers to invest in a lot of training for their employees. Two, they very carefully selected the list of the first Lexus dealers in the country. And three, when they had a customer complaint, they stopped at nothing to resolve these complaints. And so there's this story about Lexus customer service, and that is that Toyota received two complaints about an overheating brake light uh, on the first batch of Lexus LS 400s. So Toyota recalled every single Lexus, and they had dealers go and pick up the car from consumers, bring them to the Lexus dealer, repair it, and then return the car's to the owners with a full tank of gas and a car wash. And this created a lot of customer goodwill for a a complaint that most drivers didn't even experience or didn't even notice. And so they, this was a way to show consumers that they were serious about customer service. And I think that culture of customer service is still ingrained in Lexus today. And similar to Honda, Toyota, as they were preparing to launch the LS 400, the flagship car, They realized they couldn't give dealers just one car to sell. So here they decided to also create a smaller, more affordable car that would look like the LS400, but was based on a more affordable and less expensive car. So they took a Toyota Camry at the time and restyled it and gave it some of the interior bits and luxury pieces from the LS400 and called it the Lexus ES. And this launched at the same time, and both cars were quite popular. So Lexus grew very rapidly in its first several years of operation. So according to Lexus, they became the best-selling imported luxury car by 1991, so just two years after launching at the Detroit Auto Show, and they actually outsold Mercedes-Benz and BMW by then, which is pretty amazing as you think about how long Mercedes and BMW had been in the U.S. market by then. But Lexus just brought this knockout car that could compete dollar for dollar with Mercedes and BMW, and then priced it at two-thirds of the price. And so this this car sold really well and was really well-received by owners. And also, even to this day, a lot of those original LS400s are considered to be some of the most reliable and durable cars on the road. So it's pretty common to see these first-generation LS400s with 300,000, 400,000, 500,000, sometimes 1 million miles on the odometer. And so these cars were truly well-engineered and well-built. So different from Honda, though, Toyota's years of research to build the LS and all the time they spent during the 1980s meant that they had built a lot of internal knowledge about what American luxury consumers were looking for. And Lexus used this information to inform their new model strategy throughout the 1990s and 2000s, and the company was the best-selling luxury car brand until deep into the 2010s. And after this successful launch, Toyota kept the money flowing, and they used all of their knowledge about the American luxury car market to build Lexus into this top-tier luxury brand, at least in the United States. So I think their story is one of consistency, where 
they kept the investment going and they continually rolled out new products that were consistent with their brand identity in a sense and they maintained this very persistent focus on building these extremely high quality cars that were reliable and durable and comfortable and so to this day Many people consider Lexus a tier one luxury brand on the same level as Mercedes-Benz, BMW, and Audi. And one part of their strategy that differed from Acura and Infiniti, or Nissan's luxury brand, is that Honda and Nissan were a little less consistent with investing in their brands over the years. So they kind of each have had these start and stop, start and stop investment cycles, but Toyota never really stopped investing in Lexus. And I think this consistency over time has really paid off for them and but that doesn't mean that Lexus as a brand has not been without its struggles and so Lexus has struggled with two things one has been developing a reputation as a fun to drive high performance car because a lot of the early Lexus products were focused on comfort and quality and so they developed a reputation as a really nice car but maybe a little boring and not quite as fun to drive as something you might buy from BMW and Audi so they had a challenging time attracting younger shoppers as the years rolled on. So as the baby boomers kind of became a little older and started to retire, Lexus was having difficulty selling their products to a younger generation of luxury car buyers. And that's been changing over the past decade, but for a very long time, Lexus products were considered this super reliable, but maybe a little dull uh, luxury car. And so this is probably their biggest Achilles heel in the business, with some exceptions over time, but they've been working on this over the years, and some of their newest products are actually quite fun to drive based on what the motoring press has said. And the other area where Lexus has struggled has been exporting that success in the U.S. to other markets. So Lexus has had less of a success in Europe, where consumers have a strong preference for kind of the European brands of Mercedes, BMW, and Audi, and where consumers maybe place a little bit more emphasis on heritage. And Lexus has struggled a bit in understanding the European luxury car buyer. And in addition, Lexus has struggled a little bit in Japan as well, because Toyota products are so good. And um, Lexus products are often considered a bit too showy in the Japanese market, where luxury car buyers in Japan kind of prefer something a little more understated and a little more um, subtle in its luxury than Lexus. And so I think those are the two big struggles that Lexus has faced over the years. And kind of a third struggle that they're starting to rectify is they've been a bit slow to enter some new market segments. And so Lexus invented the modern luxury crossover with the 1999 RX300, but they've been very slow in expanding into three-row luxury crossovers. So the RX has two rows, and they didn't introduce a three-row version until very recently, and that third row is really compromised. So they've, they've kind of struggled to enter some of these new high-growth segments that their competitors have entered, like Acura and Infinity. And so Lexus, over time, their, their product lineup, while it's quite good, it doesn't necessarily cover every segment of the luxury car market. But in general, Lexus was a big deal. And Lexus and that original LS400 are one of those iconic cars that fundamentally change the way the business thinks about a particular car or a particular segment. Mainly, the Lexus LS400 and Lexus in general showed the world that Japanese car companies could build a world-class luxury car, 
and that you didn't need to have this like deep history to have a luxury car division. So up until the launch of Lexus, there had kind of been this general wisdom in the car business that to be a true luxury brand, you had to have this long history of selling high-end cars. So Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Jaguar, Land Rover, these companies had all been in the car business a very long time and had kind of long histories that they could draw upon to impress shoppers. And Toyota showed with Lexus that you could replicate that and invent that out of thin air by creating a car that was incredibly high quality at a great price. And that fundamentally changed how people thought about world-class luxury cars. And Toyota's continued persistence and consistent effort over time have allowed the company to further reinforce the idea that you can create a world-class luxury car from scratch. Like, you don't have to have this long tradition of being in the car business or the luxury car business to be able to do this. And so it kind of opened the door to later efforts, specifically by Genesis and Hyundai, to create luxury out of thin air, so to speak. So of the three Japanese luxury brands we'll talk about on this series, Lexus has by far been the most successful of the three. And this is not just in terms of changing how people in the business think about luxury cars. It's also paid off financially very handsomely for Toyota. So Toyota doesn't report separate financial statements for Lexus because it's a wholly owned division. The rumor is that Lexus profits account for a disproportionate share of Toyota's profits in the United States overall. So what I mean by that is that if Lexus constitutes, for example, this is just an illustration, if they constitute 20% of Toyota USA sales, it might be 45 or 50% of the profits. And so I don't have exact numbers on that, but just keep in mind that Lexus punches well above its weight in terms of delivering profits to Toyota. And Lexus has also typically led the entire industry in customer satisfaction and owner loyalty, so their focus on customer service has also paid massive dividends for Lexus corporate and for its dealer network over time. So I think that's another big revolution in how the business thinks about luxury cars. So up until Lexus, luxury car companies had not really paid a lot of attention to being reliable. So they had spent most of their time focused on performance, comfort, and technological advancement, but... Toyota showed that luxury also means not having to always have to go and get repair work done. And luxury is freedom from the hassles of having to deal with all that. And that's what a lot of consumers loved and still do about Lexus, is that these cars are reliable, you don't really have to think about them, and they just don't consume a lot of mental energy to maintain and keep. And there you have it. This is how we ended up with Lexus and why it was such a revolutionary brand, both for Toyota in terms of generating profits and for the business in general, in terms of how automakers and how the industry thought about what a luxury car could be. And Toyota was wildly successful where Honda and Nissan have struggled a little bit. And the big difference in their work is they made a massive upfront commitment and they were persistent and consistent over time in building upon what they've learned. And so next week we'll explore Infinity, Nissan's premium brand, and it's very different life story since its debut in 1989. So Infinity hit the market at the same time as Lexus, but they had a very different kind of journey leading to today. And that wraps up our story about Lexus. And so on our next episode, we'll talk about Infinity, and then we'll move on to a new topic after that. 
So if you have a listener question, don't forget to write in. It's companycarspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Instagram. We're at companycarspodcast. And hope you enjoyed the show. Of course, it takes a whole village to make a podcast. And so we want to make sure we give due credit to the individuals involved with making this podcast. Our chief technical advisor is Turn It Off and On. And our legal and strategy consultant is Bill Me Moore. Finally, we're assisted by our product planner, Ada Trim, and our finance and insurance manager, Mark Up the Rates. Thank you for listening to our show, and make sure to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.